According to his promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You may turn this morning to both passages you see on the screen, Matthew 8 and Luke 7. We will be bouncing back and forth this morning. Matthew 8 and Luke 7. I did find my Bible, so uh, things are already looking to be an improvement over Sunday morning. Before we begin, let's take time for silent prayer to prepare our heart for the reception of eternal truth. Shall we pray? Almighty Father, we do thank you for the privilege we have this morning to assemble together. We thank you for the opportunity to study the living and abiding Word of God. We ask that you would sanctify our time, you would bless our studies, and and make clear to each one of us the uh, not only with the, the meaning of the passage, what it's saying, but the application. What are we, what are we expected to do about it, Father? Um, humble us to receive Your Word and live our lives accordingly. We thank You in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. All right, we're dealing with episode 18 in the Galilean ministry, the very bottom episode on page one of our Harmony of the Gospel tables. So when we complete that, we will turn to page two. And we'll feel like we're just racing along at breakneck speed. We're coming after this event to the raising of the widow's son, the first of three miraculous resuscitations. The Lord raised uh, a widow's son. He raises Jairus' daughter and then, of course, Lazarus um, from the grave. So three times there we'll be dealing with all of those. So we are proceeding at uh, our present pace. Uh, for this morning, though, Matthew chapter 8 and Luke chapter 7, it's been a couple of weeks. We had last week off because of the pastor's conference in Houston. So I want to kind of take a moment here to review what we've done with this already. Let's just read through the Matthew account and we'll read through the Luke account. We'll remind ourselves that we're dealing here with kind of a sticky wicket in some respects, a, a passage that appears to have contradictions, a passage that a skeptic would use to say, see, you can't trust the Bible. And so it's very important that we handle this so that we can uh, not run from it and uh, act like it's not there. But we can say, yes, there's an apparent contradiction in there. But here's the harmony. Here's how they don't contradict, but they rather blend. And uh, we can do real well with it at that point. So in Matthew 8, verse 5 through 13, when Jesus entered Capernaum, a centurion came to him, imploring him and saying, notice is when he entered Capernaum. A centurion came to him, imploring him, and saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. And Jesus said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. Now, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who were following, Truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. Then a couple of verses we'll focus on today. I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. But the sons of the kingdom will be cast into the outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And Jesus said to the centurion, Go, it shall be done for you as you have believed. And the centurion was healed 
I'm sorry, the servant was healed at that very moment. All right, that's Matthew 8, 5 through 13. When we turn over to Luke 7, we read similar details, but with some differences. When he had completed all his discourse in the hearing of the people, he went to Capernaum. And, uh, of course, this is in the aftermath of the Sermon on the Mount. And a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. When he heard about Jesus, he sent some Jewish elders asking him to come and save the life of his son. When they came to Jesus, they earnestly implored him, saying, He is worthy for you to grant this to him. For he loves our nation, and it was he who built us our synagogue. Now Jesus started on his way with them, and when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. For this reason I did not even consider myself worthy to come to you, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, this is very similar to what we read in Matthew, with soldiers under me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another come, and he comes, and to my slave do this, and he does it. Now when Jesus heard this, he marveled at him and turned and said to the crowd that was following him, I say to you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. Then verse 10, when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the slave in good condition. All right, so that's Matthew 8, 5 through 13, followed by Luke 7, 1 through 11. Now, the differences, as we've noticed, are apparent. In the Matthew record, uh, there's no indication of the elders or the servants, the friends being sent. In the Luke account, there's no reference to the centurion himself going personally. And so that appears to be contradictory. It appears that Matthew says that the centurion went. And in Luke, it appears that the centurion did not go. All right. And so we've been dealing with it at this point. Under uh, point one, we observe the difficulty that this is perhaps the most difficult one to harmonize, which is good news, which means that if we get comfortable with uh, sticky wickets like this passage, then other places that are not nearly as thorny uh, should be easier for us to, to reconcile. Remember the basic premise that underlies all of the skeptics and all of the Bible haters and all of the God haters when they say that the Bible contradicts itself. Their basic premise behind that is that God didn't really write the Bible in the first place. That this is simply, you know, a lot of traditions and oral traditions and legends and things that were accumulated through the years and then gradually found their way into written form that were accepted as being, uh, you know, motivational or inspirational literature. Okay, that's the lie of higher criticism. That's the lie of source criticism and every other uh, aspect of of the uh, modern scholarship as it is known. So when you start with the fact that God wrote the Bible, that clears a lot of issues up right there. And then if there are apparent uh, discrepancies or contradictions, we remember, now, wait a minute. God is not the author of confusion. These don't contradict. They complement. And we want to find out how do we complement the passages. Where is the harmony between the passages? Now, Matthew's account describes a centurion appearing personally. Luke's account describes a centurion sending representatives and not appearing personally. But we are going to harmonize those accounts. In fact, I'm stealing wholeheartedly from Zane Hodges and material that he wrote in a theological journal back in October of 1964. Uh, specifically Bibsack, Volume 121, Issue 484. If you want to find that material for yourself and, and read it yourself, it's, it's detailed and technical, but should be quite a blessing for anyone who wants to read it. Now, 
the basic harmonization I give you under point two, which you can simply outline under subpoint A. Here's the outline, the basic sequence. We put Matthew and Luke together, much like we put Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John together to get a comprehensive harmony of the Gospels. See, here we're just doing it in miniature form to get a harmony of the uh, centurion servants healed episode. We are combining gospel accounts to synthesize them into a, uh, a more thorough record. So with the basic outline, the boy falls sick. That's the first thing that happens. Centurion sends Jewish elders. Centurion sends friends to Jesus. But then the centurion comes himself after he sends the elders and after he sends the friends. And that's a detail not recorded by Luke, and, but yet it doesn't contradict anything Luke says. See, likewise... Uh, nothing is, is exclusive. Nothing here contradicts what Matthew says. Matthew says, slave boy falls sick. Centurion comes himself. Matthew omits steps two and three, but Matthew's record does not prohibit the possibility of steps two or three. And I hope I made that clear two weeks ago, and I hope it's clear again this morning. That these, uh, neither account fatally contradicts the veracity of the other. Simply because Luke stopped with detail three and does not record detail four does not damage Luke's truthfulness, does not damage the content of what Luke is communicating, and does not, uh, as I put it, fatally contradict what Luke is communicating. Likewise with Matthew, for omitting detail two and detail three, it does not impact the truthfulness of what Matthew's saying. See, and remember, Matthew was there. Luke wasn't. <laughs> All right. Matthew was a disciple. Matthew was on hand. Matthew was there. He left his tax business. He's following Christ at this point. He was on the sermon. He was on the mount, hearing the sermon on the mount. He's with the Lord to observe this. Now, let me ask you, if if uh, when you consider somebody important who comes, you know, if if uh, if the president of the United States walked into this room right now, say, well, Prior to him walking in, what would happen? Well, we'd have Secret Service walking in, right? We would have, and they would do a full and complete uh, security sweep of the place, and then we would have aides that would come in, and then he would come in. Now, if, if all we did was call home tonight and say, Mom, you'll never guess what happened. Uh, President Bush was in Bible class this morning, okay? Now, I failed to tell my mom that the Secret Service got there first, and I failed to tell my mom that, that then there were various aides and other assistants and folks that came in uh, after the Secret Service came in, right? I just skipped right to the main deal, didn't I? And that's really what Matthew's all about here. The centurion himself came personally. And it doesn't fit in, uh, in the scope of Matthew's approach as the gospel of the kingdom, to in, in telling the story how the centurion comes communicating principles of delegated authority and chain of command, that the impact of the Jewish elders coming and these friends coming didn't bother Matthew at all, and he totally passed over him. Okay? So, under subpoint B, Matthew's gospel purpose needed no mention of the messengers preceding the centurion. And Luke's gospel purpose needed no mention of the centurion's change of heart and personal appearance before Christ. And neither account fatally contradicts the veracity of the other. When the skeptics say, well, there's a contradiction. One has to be true, the other has to be false. No. Neither one fatally contradicts. In other words, you don't have to insist on an either or. That you can insist on the both and. Okay? Now, there are... 
places, not in the Bible, but there are statements that we can make that are um, uh, that do fatally contradict other accounts. See, you can, and that's there's simply laws of logic, the law of non-contradiction, and so forth. You know, you read an account that says, um, uh, I was doing some biography reading about a hymn writer, a hymn, uh, and it says that he died in 1924. And then I read another account from another author, different source, and it says that he died in 1927. Well, uh, hmm, okay, different authors, different accounts, mutually exclusive. One of them fatally contradicts the other, whichever one is right, or maybe they're both wrong for all I know. But you're dealing with something there where you can't, they can't both be true. He either died in, in 1924 or 1927. He couldn't have died in both years. All right. So something like that, you look at it and say, okay, that's mutually exclusive. The law of non-contradiction then says they cannot both be true. They are mutually exclusive truths. And so you, you can apply logic there, certainly. But this is not a case like that. This is not a case where these two accounts are mutually exclusive, where they are, uh, where one has to cancel the other. They can both be true, and I think we've demonstrated that they both are true. And if we can relax about that, then the rest of it, I think, comes pretty naturally. All right, which brings us to the details. And this is the meat of the study and where we want to, uh, where we left off two weeks ago, and then we will proceed from here into the prophecy where uh, we'll probably end up spending the bulk of our time. Now, the details, followed by the Lord's response. Under this, I think some of the information that we are given is, is quite vivid. Um, and there was a bit of vocabulary attached to this. The, the centurion is a fascinating study just... If you're a part of, if you if you love history anyway, the the organization of the Roman military was extraordinary, and the centurion was the backbone of the uh, the, the force of legions that conquered the world. The centurion was the uh, the primary ground commander of his day. Um, different terms in Greek for centurion, primarily uh, because they're taking a Latin term and. and putting it into the Greek language, they did so a couple of different ways. They, they gave it their own term, or then they just simply transliterated the Latin term. And as a vocabulary study, there's nothing really too dramatic about that. The one thing we will spot when we study centurions in the Bible is that they, they don't appear all that frequently. They do appear in the Gospels. They appear in the book of Acts. And every centurion we come across is a good one. Every centurion we come across is, uh, there's a positive example, whether it's this one here that builds a synagogue for them in Capernaum, or whether it's uh, Cornelius, or whether it's any, uh, you know, the centurions that saved Paul's life when the, when the mob was going was gonna, to uh, kill him, things like that. We have very positive examples of centurions in the New Testament. That's just something to observe. I don't know that we want to read too much into it. Clearly, there were brutal centurions as well, and they weren't all God-fearing men. But the ones that uh, the Lord encounters and the disciples encounter were uh, were extraordinary in that regard. Also, when it comes to this slave, we uh, looked a little bit at the vocabulary. We didn't dwell on it that much. He is called a doulos, which is a slave. You know, I think some modern English tries to gloss over that, and they, they like the word servant instead of slave. No, it's bondage. It's bond service. It is a slave, such as uh, we practiced in our country at one time and was outlawed at one time. So, uh, you know, if, if we can get over our collective societal guilt for certain things and just observe historical realities for what they are, he was a slave. 
The fact that he's called a boy, a pice, P-A-I-S, is uh, indicative of his age. In all likelihood, he was born a slave. He was born to slave parents, and so he's born in the economic condition of slavery. The fact that he was precious is uh, more indicative of the centurion's character than his character. Highly regarded or precious is not a character trait that's intrinsic when you, when you think of people. Um, it's, it's a character trait that describes the person that considers him that way, right? Um, with things, things can be intrinsically precious. A diamond or, or, or precious metal or something. There's a, there's a value that's inherent to that object. And so we can say this diamond is precious, this ruby is precious, this emerald or whatever. Those, those things can be intrinsically precious. When you deal with people, though, the, the concept of what, is, what has honor, what doesn't have honor, what's precious, what's not precious, that's not so much a native feature of the person involved, but how other people consider them. See, uh, somebody might be very precious to you, uh, but that's because they're precious to you. <laughs> they may not be precious to somebody else. In fact, you may be the only one that considers them precious. See, we say someone has the face that only a mother could love, for example. Well, what does that mean? Well... It means his mom loves him, but there's, there's not a lot of attractiveness beyond that. Okay? It's kind of an insulting comment. Well, so the fact that he's highly regarded, that he's precious in the sight of, of his, the centurion, speaks more to the centurion's character, not his own. All right? Speaks more to the fact that the centurion actually values people for, for people rather than property. See, even though he's a slave, he values this boy. And he doesn't just consider him disposable or throwaway or, or um, as, as was the case for most uh, applications in slavery. And it's something we want to keep in mind, too, when we consider that we are choice and precious in the sight of God. First, Tim, uh, First Peter 2, verses 4 and 6, when we talk about being choice and precious stones, that's not because intrinsically we're so wonderful that God looks at us and goes, oh, wow, how precious. I think I'll save them. But because he loves us, he redeems us, we're precious in his sight. See, the uh, aspect of our being precious is because of his character, not our, own, uh, not our own worth. None of us is worthy of being precious in God's sight. So there's, there's principles there to apply as well. And that's really, that's where I think the impact of this passage comes in. Thirdly, he was sick and about to die. He was sick and about to die. Interestingly enough, the general phrase comes in Luke's record. And the more descriptive phrase comes in Matthew's record. And I don't know if if I stressed this well enough a couple weeks ago or not, but this is weird. Normally, when we're looking at the gospel, the synoptic gospels, one thing that you can almost count on is the fact that anything that's medically related, we're going to get the more specific uh, description of that from the doctor, Dr. Luke. Okay, It's not going to be the tax collector, Matthew, that gives us the more precise medical terms. It's not going to be the servant, Mark, that gives us the more precise medical terms. It, when we're dealing with Matthew, Mark, and Luke and the Synoptic Gospels, almost every single time, Luke's account gives us the more precise medical terms. Except here. 
Here, in this case, he was sick and about to die, uh, is, is very general in his descriptiveness, that he had it bad and uh, was about to expire, uh, about to be complete. Uh, so that's, that's general terminology. It's in Matthew's record, coming from the words of the centurion himself, that we get the most vivid description that he was lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. All right? Lying paralyzed at home and fearfully tormented. And so, if I may, let me just remind us. You have any spare fingers left? I know you got one in Matthew 8, you got one in Luke 7. Uh, if, if you have any spare fingers, Glance over at Luke 1 and how the gospel begins. Let's remind ourselves that Luke was an investigative reporter or a historian. He wasn't on hand to make the diagnosis for himself. It says, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Okay, Luke right here makes it clear that he was not an eyewitness from the beginning. Luke was not a disciple of Jesus Christ. Luke was not an eyewitness from the beginning. He had to hear secondhand from those who were eyewitnesses from the beginning. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully, from the beginning to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Now, we don't know who Theophilus was. The title most excellent is, is an interesting appellation to give to him. But all of that aside, we know that Luke was not an eyewitness of these things. Matthew was. Luke um, investigated because he had learned everything from secondhand sources. He had learned the story of, of Christ from Paul, and even Paul himself was not a disciple. So he has an opportunity, when Paul's in prison in Caesarea for two and a half years or three years, he has an opportunity to travel throughout the region of Jerusalem and Judea and Galilee and all these regions and to investigate the stories to get the first-hand accounts, to travel to Capernaum, to speak to people in Capernaum, see, about the different things that had happened. And, as such, he uh, learns the story here of this centurion and his slave. Now, did he hear it directly from the centurion himself? Not likely. Not likely. In the years that have gone by, the centurion who would have been old enough to be a centurion during the life of Christ is likely either no longer alive or no longer in military service by the time Luke is on the ground in Capernaum investigating the stories. But I bet you this boy was still around. Or other servants were still around. Or other Jewish leaders were still around. People that were in the synagogue were still around. Who were still thankful that they had a synagogue to worship in were still around. And they would remember that centurion who built them the synagogue. And the boy that was sick and the, what Jesus did on his behalf. So what we're saying is, is Luke, as he investigated, in all likelihood never knew that the centurion personally went to talk to Jesus. Because Luke never talked to the people that knew about that. See, it doesn't affect the accuracy of what Luke recorded. And of course, everything Luke records here is under inspiration of Scripture. So the, the Holy Spirit is recording it. But he used Luke's um, historical investigations to craft this gospel record. And uh, I think it just gives us another insight into why 
we have the the uh, divergent details between Matthew's record and Luke's record. So we read in Luke 7, 2, a centurion slave who was highly regarded by him was sick and about to die. We have here the reflection of what Luke learned when he spoke to those that were there at the time and, re- and had memory of this event. That this boy was precious. And that the centurion sent elders and he sent friends. Maybe they didn't even know that he'd gone out personally. But when we read in Matthew, and the centurion comes to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. We get vivid details coming directly. This is direct discourse recorded by Matthew coming from the mouth of the centurion to Jesus. Matthew's on hand to hear these words spoken, and he records them for us. He records them for us. Now, I think the terminology here is indicative. We commented on this as well. Uh, fearfully tormented uh, makes for some fascinating study to wonder uh, perhaps if this was entirely medical or if possibly there was a demonic involvement as well as far as what was causing this paralyzed state. Uh, the text doesn't say, we don't really want to speculate on it, but I think the use of the phrase tormented, fearfully tormented, uh, by the centurion gives us an indicator that the centurion was at least familiar with uh, spiritual powers and uh, demons and and whatnot as as being a a possibility for the the, uh, cause of the sickness to begin with. All right, now, new ground for today. Let's deal with this worthiness. Because back in Luke, we got this amazing contrast. I give it to you under subpoint D, relative perspectives on worthiness. Just as we pointed out that this boy being precious, well, precious to the centurion, may not have been precious to anybody else. So it's a relative perspective. I may find things worthwhile, but that's in my opinion. You may look at it and say, what a waste of time. Okay. I come across an old hymnal and I go, oh, I've got to have that. Someone else may say, you've got 65 hymnals on four different shelves. What do you need another one for? Well... Because I don't have that one. (laughs) And that one may have a hymn that's not found in any of the other 64. Or it may have have not just an entirely different hymn, but it may have different verses for different hymns. Verses that aren't found in other hymnals. Or it might be in a different key, or it might have different music. There's lots of different reasons to have a 65th hymnal added to your collection. All right. You say, well, does that ever end? (laughs) Not in my opinion. All right. Now, what a contrast, though. As we look at it here in Luke, this this contrast on worthiness in Luke 7, in verses 4 and 5, when the elders come, they are urging Jesus to do the miracle because the man's worthy of it. The vocabulary there is axios, A-X-I-O-S, axios. And the idea of equality, the idea axios was used uh, in terms of scales, uh, meaning basically balanced, meaning you weigh something here on this end, and then you have an equivalent amount of silver on this end, and so the scales balance, and we say, okay, it's worthy, it's equitable, it's fair. And so they, uh, they make this claim, he's worthy, come do this miracle, he is worthy for you to grant this to him. And that's a typically legalistic approach. (laughs) 
where you view human worthiness or human merit as uh, works designed to produce God's favor. I'm going to live up to God's expectations, so I will be worthy of his blessing. That's legalism. That's works. That's everything these Jewish elders are wrapped up about. Whereas he says, no, I'm not worthy. Jesus started on his way with them, and here come these friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself further, for I am not worthy for you to come under my roof. This aspect of being unworthy. The phrase that's there is, uh, I'm not sufficient I'm not sufficient. Ugar hikonos. We've had hikonos in beginning Greek class. I'm not sufficient. It's a way of describing I don't measure up. Also in Luke 7 it says, uh, I myself am not worthy. In Luke 7, 7. So he's not sufficient. He's not worthy. All right. Which is, by the way, somebody asked, how come on, on the, I end every uh, of those monthly columns in the ABC Messenger with that Greek word at the end of that column? It says anoxios. Well, it's the negative of oxios. You've got oxios right there. Put the A-N-A in front of it. Anoxios means unworthy. That's all it means. Indicating that any ministry, any gift, any role uh, that, uh, that I have in the church or anybody has, we're not worthy of it. Just trying to stay faithful. That's all that's about. Now, the, the relative statement of worthiness. So, the elders say he is. The friends say, no, no, he, he says he's not. He himself says he's not. Let's spend some time now in Matthew. He says, Lord, I'm not worthy. In Matthew 8.8. 8, that's the phrase, Ugar Hikonos. I'm not sufficient. I am not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Now, the question then gets asked, though, is I will come. Now, it's, it's placed as a phrase, as, a, as an indicative statement in Matthew 8, 7 in most English texts, but it could also be rendered as a question. Shall I come? All right. And you can take it as a statement, I will come, or as a question, shall I come? And I think either way you take it, it's, it's worth considering uh, when we look at the, the record here, Jesus entered Capernaum. A centurion came to him saying, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. Now notice, the, the centurion doesn't say, come to my house. Okay? He doesn't say, come to my house. He says, my servant is paralyzed at home, fearfully tormented. He doesn't say, come. Now, the... Uh, but Jesus makes the statement, I will come, or shall I come? And whether you take it as a statement or a question, there is a response, Lord, don't do that. I'm not worthy for you to come. So I don't think it really matters whether he's asking a question or whether he's making a statement. Because the centurion himself does not say come. It's probably the reason why he goes out in the third place after sending elders in the first place and after sending friends in the second place. All of a sudden, the reality of what he just asked for sinks in on him. He says, I just asked the Son of God, creator of the universe, to come to my house. <laughs> and so he himself goes out in the third place to say, um, you don't need to come. I don't want you to come. I'm not worthy for you to come. Okay, um, Realizing that the elders were going to flatter him is why he sent the friends out. But realizing that even if the friends communicate his unworthiness, the friends are still going to ask for Jesus to come to the house. 
And the man says, no, you don't have to come to the house. So he comes out thirdly in the third case and says, no, you don't even have to come. Just right there, right where you are, say the word and and uh, this boy will be just fine. So it's an interesting question. If it is a question or a statement, either way, the man understands that it's not necessary for him to be present there. Now, at some point after we deal with the authority issue, under authority and authority over, under and over, under authority and authority over the the aspects of authority are such that they are organized in a chain and that the relationship of two individuals in an authority context is one of over or under in an authority context is one of over or under. Oftentimes, the relationship between two people outside of an authority context may be side to side. Outside of an authority context, the relationship of one to another might be one of equivalency, might be one of partnership, might be one of of uh, cooperation, see, as in the case of husband and wife. They are heirs together in the grace of life. They are partners. She is a helpmate. Together, they have a responsibility before the Lord. However... When we examine the husband and the wife in an authority context, what do we have? There's an over-under, isn't there? The husband is over the wife. See, in an authority structure, we have an over-under. When we remove the authority structure from consideration and we're looking at a purpose structure, we're looking at a work assignment structure, then biblically we can place them side by side. Husbands and wives as heirs together of the grace of life. All right? Now, we do the same thing in terms of deity. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. They're all co-equal. They're all in parallel. The Son is no less God than the Father. The Holy Spirit is no less God than the Son or the Father. They're all even in terms of their essence, their nature, their being, their person, their glory. But when we put it, when we examine the, the Godhead under an authority structure, what do we, what do we find? We find that the Father is over the Son. The Son is under the Father. And we find the, the order of precedent that is there established is always the nature of authority structures. And the centurion understands that. The centurion is equipped to understand that because of the uh, precise nature of military command, particularly in all militaries, but particularly in the Roman military where the structure was very clear. So in Matthew 8, we read this. It's also present in Luke 7. I'm just going to stick in Matthew for now. Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. Right here, right where you are. Give the command. The centurion knows that you don't have to go there and do it yourself. And the reason why is because of the chain of command and the nature of delegated authority, delegated responsibility. It says, for I also am a man under authority with soldiers under me. Do you know how powerful that statement is? I also. You know what he's saying? He's saying, I also, just like you, Jesus, just like you, Lord. I also am a man under authority. In other words, I have commanders over me. For the centurion, he would have a, uh, uh, his century would, would be within a cohort in many cases, a cohort then falls under a legion. Okay, I don't believe his particular cohort fell under a legion. I believe his cohort was what we call an auxiliary cohort. 
It was a uh, a special cohort that was formed to serve. In this case, he served Herod right there in Capernaum. The regular army legions um, were not posted at Capernaum. The regular army legions were at Caesarea and other places under different Roman command. But this centurion was in Capernaum. He was a part of a uh, a detached cohort or a special cohort. And then the cohort fell under somebody else's authority, specifically Herod's authority. All right. Well, he says, I am under and over. He recognizes he's got authority above him and he's got those below him that answer to him. And so he can have a soldier run and do that. He can have a servant run and do that. But he himself is subject to who's over him in that chain of command. See, just like, you know, uh, whatever your military rank is, there's somebody over you. Okay, even if you're a general, there's other generals over you, right? If you're a two star, guess what? There's a three star somewhere that you have to answer to to say, yes, sir. All the way on up. See, now. What he's saying here is when he says, I also am a man under authority, he is identifying properly that God, the son, the Lord Jesus Christ is on this earth subject to God, the father. He understands, even though uh, we haven't gotten to the point where the Lord's trying to teach the disciples that uh, the son can do nothing of himself. Whatever he sees the father doing, these things he also does in like manner that I can do nothing of my own initiative. But as the father teaches, so I do see he has this understanding of Jesus as under the command of God, the father. And yet in sovereign command over disease, sickness. Uh, that with with the uh, power to to heal his his uh, his slave, so he communicates the over under, or the under over, under authority and authority over. That's what he is, and he understands that's what Jesus is, under authority and yet in authority over. And the centurion's appreciation for chain of command equipped him to appreciate God's nature and work through the orderly application of authority power. Equipped him to appreciate God's nature and work through the orderly application of authority power. When you think about it, how much more can you do? How could Caesar possibly command the entire Roman Empire by himself? He can't. And so he delegates. And he's got a legion in... in, uh, Syria, the Roman province of Syria. He's got a legion that then that legion then has sent, uh, sent cohorts and centuries under it that are in the various regions of of the province of Syria, including Judea. See, uh, but he's also got a legion in in uh, Gaul. And he's got a legion in England and he's got a legion in Spain. He's got a legion in Africa. And he's got legions in all these other parts of the empire. And he delegates authority and he commands through those legions. And those legions then delegate through the centuries. A century being a body of 100 soldiers commanded by a centurion. See, And so Caesar can't be everywhere all at once, but he can command through these agencies, chain of command. And so while sitting in the forum at Rome... Caesar can give a command and it happens in Jerusalem or it happens in Capernaum or it happens wherever he says this needs to happen. That's how through delegated authority 
human beings can extend authority in in the in this place now god is omnipresent of course his authority is everywhere but the principle of chain of command is how he structured his creation so god's nature and work through the orderly application of authority power remarkably enough when god wanted to create what did he do he delegated it to the son god said let there be light and there was light why because the father determined the son did Father said, let there be, and the son said, yes, sir. The father was the architect, the son was the engineer, the master builder, and creation was accomplished. So, the, uh, the centurion's understanding of this is extraordinary. And he's been a friend of the Jewish people for some time. He's come to love their nation. He's come to identify with what? With what would make the Jewish nation so unique? Of all the other nations that Rome ever conquered, what would make the Jewish nation so unique? Why would the centurion come to appreciate them? Unless he had an orientation to God consciousness, gospel hearing, and the truth of God's word. All right. The Lord's testimony accurately portrayed the centurion's statements. See, this is not just uh, my opinion saying that the centurion was godly, the centurion uh had these things figured out jesus christ testified that this centurion had it figured out as a manifestation of a faith beyond any proportion he had yet witnessed among the jews we talked about that with the spiritual gift of faith there are different proportions of faith believers in the church age with the spiritual gift of faith have the highest proportion of faith of any believer in this current stewardship But here's a Gentile that has a higher proportion of faith than any Jew that Jesus had ever encountered up to that point in time. Truly, I say to you, when Jesus heard this, he marveled. He marveled the statement of amazement or impression. He is impressed. His humanity is impressed. And he said to those who were following, truly, I say to you, I have not found such great faith with anyone in Israel. He has not encountered that proportion of faith. All right. Now that's not to say that he's the greatest living human being. That was already, that was a statement that is reserved for John the baptizer. Among those born among women, there has not arisen one greater than John the baptizer. John the baptizer is the greatest living believer of this generation, the greatest living believer of all time up to this point in time. Let's not confuse greatness with faith. As far as the faith aspect goes, the centurion actually outscored John the baptizer in the faith department. Now, he obviously had other issues. They didn't quite measure up to John the baptizer. So, you know, his overall score didn't quite rank up there with John the baptizer. John the baptizer was still the greatest of all time. However, in, if, if faith is the only thing you're going by, this man outscores John in terms of faith. Because the statements are both true. That John the baptizer is the greatest and this man has the greatest faith. Both statements are true. Now, what then is the result of this? The result of this great faith comes a prophecy that we're going to spend some time with at our point four, the prophecy, verses 11 and 12. A prophecy that's not found in the Gospel of Luke. A prophecy that Matthew records. He was on hand. He heard the Lord utter it. It pertained to uh, this centurion. 
And I think it's remarkable in terms of the centurion's humility that he didn't go home and start bragging about it. <laughs> Said, woohoo, I'm going to I'm going to eat with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. I've got a reward lined up for me. Didn't brag about it. In fact, by the time Luke starts investigating these things, interviewing uh, servants and all the rest and people that were there, uh, there's not a word of that that's even being told. Centurion didn't take that story home and brag about it. But the Lord did make that as a promise. Now, I've not found such great faith with anyone in Israel, and there is a reward for faith. There is a reward for faith that is uh, given in the millennial kingdom. There is a reward for faith that comes in the form of a dining invitation with Abraham, the father of the faith, the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob here. Now, when we believe, what do we become? Romans tells us, children of Abraham by means of faith. He is the father of all who believe in the sense that Abraham believed in God. It was reckoned to him as righteousness. He stands as the patriarchal head of faith when we think about how faith is portrayed in the scriptures. All right. I believe people prior to Abraham had faith, of course. Noah had faith. There's faith before Abraham. But when the story of Abraham is told, Abraham is the living embodiment of faith. All right? Does that make sense? That you can use the story of Abraham to teach the principle of faith. One of the great speakers we had, I enjoyed him at the conference last week, was a Canadian of all things. I grew up in Washington and never really had a high view of Canadians. And they, uh, anyway, there's some stories there I won't go into, but um, there's this evangelist. He is Canadian. He travels the world. He has a tremendous gospel uh, ministry and uh, was with New Tribes Missions for a number of years. Now has his own, his own uh, organization. And one of the things he pointed out is that we can sometimes hit roadblocks when people have different definitions for words. You know, we talk about believing in Jesus and they say, oh, well, I believe. And then you realize we got a little word play going on here, a little semantic thing. They're playing games of what what does the word believe mean? Right. Like the lawyer tried to make little games of who's my neighbor. Okay, and people will do that, especially today. Words change meanings. And so, you know, we can we can doubt everything because, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? What does that mean? Okay, and what this speaker pointed out uh what was his name? Cross. Yeah, John Cross. What he pointed out was that the Bible, God protected his word, protected the Bible. Yes, he uses words like faith, but he not only uses words like faith, but he then presents stories and stories define the terms. Stories define what God means by faith. And the story of Abraham defines what does it mean to believe? When Abraham believed God, it was reckoned to him as righteousness. See, And there's different things like that. Um, you know, and, and today in our culture, they want to redefine, uh, they want to redefine sodomy. They want to redefine sin. You know, well, wait a minute. Let's not redefine anything. What did God mean when he said it? Well, what's the story of Sodom and Gomorrah all about? Okay. So we can't, the other side may want to change the terminology, But God defended the meaning of the words through the stories so that there can be no question as to what is taking place. And so 
the story of faith and the promise for reward is, is presented here. And we can realize that there is a reward coming up for believers who walked by faith and not by sight. And that reward is going to be a dinner invitation. As we read it here, I say to you that many will come from east and west and recline at the table. We don't recline. We sit. That's our culture, right? We sit and we eat in a more or less vertical position. But in their culture, they would recline. In their culture, you know, it's a matter of laying back and reclining on a couch or on a cushion of some sort or on the floor with with padding and, and whatnot, and the table is a very low table is right down there where you can lean over. And anyway, that's just the positioning of the day, a little alien for us, but we still understand it for what it is. This is a um, a feature of, of not only eating, a feature of, of um, stuffing food in your mouth, but it is a time of fellowship. The idea that you're not just You're not just eating, but you're actually in the presence of somebody. And while you're eating, while you're sharing in God's provision for the sustenance of human life, you are you are together fellowshipping over the provider of those blessings. You have the opportunity to fellowship in the things of the Lord. Some of the most intimate times are eating in Scripture. When the disciples are eating and John is reclining on Jesus' breast, see, that's intimate. That means you can be fellowshipping over the things of the Lord. You're not just, you know, hitting the drive through and cramming food down your mouth as fast as you can because you're late to the next four appointments you're trying to get to this evening. But you've stopped. You're fellowshipping. You're, you have this time. And they have this opportunity to recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. The, uh, the patriarchal feast that happens here. But the sons of the kingdom, you would think they'd be entitled to be there. <laughs> they, they are literal genetic descendants of, of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They're Jewish people. Many of them are going to be excluded because they're absent the faith required to merit, to the faith required to uh, be granted this uh, blessing, this reward of blessing in the millennial kingdom. They will be cast into the outer darkness in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Let's deal with this in our time remaining, and then probably all next week we'll be, we'll be uh, focused on uh, outer darkness, weeping and gnashing of teeth. Coming from the east and the west. Coming from the east and the west is the first phrase we have in verse 11. Coming from the east and the west, we have a description of the totality of the gathering. It is language that is consistent with the Old Testament prophetic language that ties this prophecy in with the second advent of Jesus Christ. That ties this promise in to uh, second advent fulfillment millennial application. All right. It is language that's consistent. When we, when we correlate this with Isaiah 43, Isaiah 45, Malachi 1, uh, also Matthew 24, 31, we realize that this is a gathering from the four corners of the earth. This is the gathering from everywhere. This, this prophecy speaks of a worldwide gathering. And the language is consistent with that. Let me simply read a couple of these places. And it doesn't matter that it says east and west, that it doesn't include north and south. There are some verses that include east, west, and north and south. 
The point being is that we are, we have here a gathering from from the uh, utmost distances. Isaiah forty three six. Kind of like the expression, as far as the east is from the west, you're pointing opposite directions, expressing the uh, the distance there involved. Isaiah 43.6. I believe this was a passage that was uh, spoken of in the prayer meeting this morning, perhaps. I wasn't in the prayer meeting this morning, but there's a passage that Ethel cited before the prayer meeting started. But now thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, do not fear, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Whatever else may happen to the Jewish people in the unfolding of history, in the end, they have a future deliverance because they belong to Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God of Israel. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. For I am Yahweh, your Elohim, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. No matter what divine discipline the nation of Israel undergoes, they will exist, they will survive, they will be restored, they have future blessings. No Gentile nation can claim that. The United States of America is in whatever cycle of discipline we're in. If we head to whatever cycle of discipline we're headed to, we have no guarantees that we'll come out the other side. No Gentile nation has ever promised a restoration if God chooses to bring that Gentile nation down. All right. Now. I have given Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in your place, since you are precious in my sight. Not because you're worth it, but because I view you that way. Since you are honored and I love you, I will give other men in your place and other peoples in exchange for your life. Do not fear, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east and gather you from the west. There's east and west. There's the language. Also, I will say to the north, give them up. And to the south, do not hold them back. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name and whom I have created for my glory, whom I have formed, even whom I have made. Now, so we have this gathering. It is a it is a context which establishes a prophetic message is is uh, you and I can relate this context to a second advent application <coughs> and it's in that framework then that this Abrahamic feast dining with Abraham Isaac and Jacob is then promised a couple chapters over in verse 45 chapter 45 of Isaiah and verse 22 Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. So again, that language of east and west, uh, consistent with all the ends of the earth. And in the, in the uh, larger context of Isaiah 45, I have sworn by myself, the word has gone forth from my mouth in righteousness and will not turn back, that to me every knee will bow, every tongue will swear allegiance. All right, so there... We have the ingathering and the second advent fulfillment. Matthew, Malachi, chapter 1 and verse 11. The final prophetic word of the Old Testament. The closing of the canon, we might say. At the point when Jesus is talking, when he's praising this centurion, they don't know there's another testament on the way. <laughs> they don't know that the New Testament's going to get written here shortly. They've got a Bible. 
And that Bible was closed with Malachi. And the closing words of Malachi and the, and the aspect of regathering and the universal nature of the rain. Verse 11 says, For from the rising of the sun, what direction is that? That's east. To its setting, that's west, my name will be great among the nations, Gentiles even. And in every place incense is going to be offered to my name, and a grain offering that is pure for my name will be great among the nations, or the Gentiles, says the Lord of hosts. And then he goes on to rebuke Israel for their for what they're doing. So this language, when he says many will come from the east and from the west, it is establishing a context. It is establishing a time frame for this prophecy to be fulfilled, and he's pinpointing it in the kingdom. He's pinpointing it after second advent in the kingdom. See. Now, what is this feasting all about? To dine with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are dinner reservations, if you will. Have you made these reservations? Pastor Bruce Einspar was talking about um, uh, trips to Israel, touring the, uh, the Holy Land and touring Jerusalem and different things. And uh, he asked if I'd ever gone. I said, no, I've never been. And um, he uh, said, well, you really need to go sometime. He even spoke about that during the message when he was speaking at 930. You really ought to go sometime. And I was talking to somebody afterwards, and I said, they said, well, uh, are you ready? When do you want to go? And I said, I don't know, anytime. I, I don't care. But the fact is, I have, uh, um, I already have reservations. And they go, you do? Yeah. I have a horseback tour of Israel already lined up. Wow. Horseback? That seemed kind of rugged. <laughs> you know? Wouldn't buses be, you know, air-conditioned buses, wouldn't they be more convenient? No, I've got a horseback tour of Israel already lined up. The reservations are made. The itinerary is already detailed for you in Revelation chapter 19. They go, oh, that's what you're talking about. Well, yeah, okay. I've got those reservations made. I've got these reservations made, hopefully. Dining with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. You plan on being at that dinner or you plan on skipping it? <laughs> You know, I mean, there's just certain meals. You don't want to miss those. I don't want to miss this. What an opportunity. I would much rather be eating with Abraham, Isaac and Jacob than in the outer darkness with the weeping, gnashing of teeth. Which one do you want to be in? Okay. All right. It is the top of the hour. We must conclude here. But keep these things in prayer and uh, stop to consider what is this outer darkness? And why did the pastor say he might be there? I thought that was hell. pastor's not going to hell, is he? Why does the pastor say that he would rather be eating with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and not in the outer darkness with the weeping and gnashing of teeth? Why would the pastor say such a thing? Because as a believer, he can't go to hell. What's he talking about? Hmm. Yeah. We'll figure that out next week. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. We thank you for the... Uh, message that we've studied, the message we anticipate studying and looking forward to these things, Father, we do rejoice that our, our reservations are indeed made. We have uh, an inheritance reserved for us. It is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for each one of us, Father, and we praise your name for that because we identify that we are not worthy of any single blessing, but you've given us all spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ. 
And we thank you for these things in Christ Jesus' most precious and holy name. Amen.